0: Okay, if you would, take your Bible this evening and turn to Micah, Malachi, I'm sorry, Malachi chapter 4. Last book of the Old Testament, last chapter of the Old Testament. After that, there's four hundred silent years they call it, till John the Baptist comes on the scene. Malachi chapter four, really a continuation of chapter three, talking about the coming of the Lord. Says, "For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the pra- yea, and all that do wickedly shall be- shall burn." Leave them neither root nor branch, but unto you that fear my name shall the Son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves with a stall, and ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember in ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. and He shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Titled this, Behold, He cometh. Behold, He cometh. Like many, even today, uh, (coughs) there's this willing... Willingful unbelief, I guess, that was prevalent in Israel's day. Now I want to notice several things about this this here this evening about his coming. First of all, there's a seeming abruptness of his coming in judgment. Of course, this chapter is talking about him coming in judgment. If you notice, it says, "Behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven," and then again in, in verse five. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Uh, and then in particularly in Thessalonians, the day of the Lord refers to the tribulation period in the millennium. will be to the earth. And so as we think about this, this coming, him coming, there's a seeming abruptness to it. James Fawcett Brown in his commentary on this passage says, the language is abrupt. Behold, the day cometh, it burns uh, like an oven. Uh, the abruptness imparts terrible reality to the picture as if it suddenly burst on the prophet's view. Unquote. As you, and if you think about that thought, it usually appears, you know, the Lord's judgment. Often appears abrupt or sudden to those in rebellion. They because they live in an unreal life without consequences world. They think it's not going to happen. And so when it does happen, it always appears like it's it's just boy, it's just there. You know, it's abrupt. It's just all of a sudden. Um uh, you know, and this is the attitude, Malachi 3, 14 and 15, remember that says, Ye have said it is vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance, and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the proud happy, yea, they that work wickedness are set up, yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. And of course, and we have a New Testament parallel for this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, Uh Bible says, but of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. So he's telling the believers there, you know that the Lord's coming is going to be like a thief in the night. You know that, but for when they shall say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, or abruptness, sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. In Luke chapter 21, verse 34, it says, And take heed yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life, so that that day come upon you unawares. You know, Luke 17, 26, Jesus speaking about Noah and the, the Sodom and Gomorrah, he says this And it was in the as it was in the days of Noah, shall it shall be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank. They married wives. They were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. So they lived just like they always did right up until the very time the flood came. Likewise also as it was in the days of Lot. They did eat. They drank. They bought. They sold. They planted. They builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So so there's going to be an abruptness or a suddenness to those in rebellion against God. They aren't prepared for it. And it's going to appear as if it's just all of a sudden, just like that, it happens. Kind of reminds me of Daniel chapter 5. Remember Belshazzar? Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. We believe it was his grandson. In his Babylonian fortress uh having a huge party and the army of Cyrus the Mede, is parked outside got to besiege and he's throwing a big party I mean after all his thinking is you know I can survive inside this fortress which he could have I mean they had gardens they had water coming in through the city they had gates across the river so you couldn't get through it was there was two walls high walls. So it was, it was an impregnable fortress and they could l- survive there for a long time. And there he is having this huge party. And in defiance to God, brings the vessels dedicated for use in the temple and drinks wine out of them. In his orgy. And verse 30 of that chapter says, and that very night Belshazzar was slain. Just like that. He's cut off. Kind of reminds me also of Jeremiah 36. You remember Jehudi reading the word of the Lord from Jeremiah Jehoiakim and he takes the scroll, cuts it up, and throws it into the fire. Thinking, well, we got rid of that. Chapter 36 and verse 30 says this. Thus saith the Lord of of Jehoiakim king of Judah, He shall have none to sit upon the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out in the day to the heat, in the night to the frost. And Jeremiah 22 tells us he was buried with the burial of an ass. Just thrown in the trash heap. We have a New Testament example of this also. In Acts 24, remember Paul giving his testimony before Felix. And he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. And Felix is with his wife, Drusilla. Drusilla, by the way, was a Jewess. And she was the the daughter of King Agrippa I. Um, But she was a very promiscuous woman. Felix was her second husband, whom he connived to get her away from her first husband. Anyway, and so they heard him concerning the faith in Christ. As he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, "Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee." So, so there's a seeming abruptness of the Lord's coming. It's it's going to come on when they they're saying peace and safety. It's going to come upon them as a woman, on travail. But it's also it's a seeming abruptness in chapter three, verse one. It says this: The Lord, behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant, whom you lighted before, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of. Christ. So, the point here is that though there's this seeming abruptness, the Lord has given everyone opportunity to prepare. Everyone. You know, in Matthew 17, verses 10 through 13, you know, the disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias has come already. And they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them, Of John the Baptist. So, of course, that's the reference chapter 3, verse 1 is talking about. So, the Lord, the Lord in his mercy gives everyone opportunity to prepare. These people had opportunity. John was their messenger to prepare. How did they prepare? They rejected him. Beheaded him. So they beheaded John and they crucified Jesus. That's how they prepared. That's how they prepared. But God in his mercy to his elect, as we think, and as I use that word elect, I'm talking about Israel in particular here, because this, this chapter 4 is talking specifically about Israel. We can make some application, but it's particularly for Israel. Is going to send Elijah. Now when I say Elijah, it's going to be Elijah. This is a different time period. The chapter 4 is talking about the tribulation. So God has mercy to Israel going to send Elijah before his judgment in the tribulation. You know, what we know, the, the tribulation is, is really what we know as the persecution of Israel culminating in the battle of Armageddon. Um, look at Matthew or uh, Malachi 4, verses 4 through 5, 4 and 5. Where it says, remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgment. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So when he referred to the great and dreadful day of the Lord, he's talking about the tribulation. And he said, Elijah is going to come. And there's also a reference here to Moses. Um... Now, with that in mind, go to Revelation chapter eleven. Revelation chapter eleven. <clears throat> Revelation chapter eleven. Now, this is this is in the middle of the tribulation period. This this chapter eleven takes place. We believe in the middle of the tribulation period. Actually, they begin at the beginning, but it the the end of this chapter is really the middle, uh, when they are killed. And you notice in Revelation 11, verses 3 to 13, it says, And I will give power unto my my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand, uh, two hundred, and threescore days, clothed in sackcloth. That's three and a half years. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Now, we know who in the Old Testament, you know, prayed in the heavens held for three and a half years, there was no rain. That was Elijah. So, we're certain one of these is Elijah. There's, there's questions about whether the other one is Moses. No, there's reference to Moses, but it doesn't strictly say that Moses will come, but it does say Elijah will come. So, we're certain one is Elijah. Some believe it's Enoch as the other because Enoch was translated that he should not see death. And Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind. He didn't die either. So, some commentators believe you know, that, that may be, the other may be uh, Enoch. But whatever that, the case here, uh, it really doesn't matter. But the point is, and when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the body of the split shall make war against them, and shall overcome them, and kill them. So they're going to prophesy or preach for three and a half years, and no man's going to be able to hurt them for three and a half years. But you know, after their mission is complete, and it's going to be in the middle of the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to, is going to kill them, and it says, and notice where. Verse 8, And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. God calls Jerusalem Sodom and Egypt. Now, if you know anything about Israel today, that's a pretty good description. They're probably more pro-gay than we are. Um, then verse 9, And they of the people and kindred and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. So they're just going to let them lay in the street for three and a half days, I guess. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice unto them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because the two prophets tormented them that dwell in the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood upon their feet and great fear fell upon them which saw them And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up into heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. In the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell, which would be Jerusalem. And in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted, and gave glory to the God of heaven. So, as you think about what's going on here, you know, to put in a timeline, the next thing to happen on a timeline, is the what? Rapture. Rapture of the saints. Okay? And then after the rapture, you start the tribulation. The tribulation will begin. And tribulation is seven years long. It's called Daniel's 70th week. There are no churches. You don't see any churches talked about during the tribulation. It's, it's going to go back to, the Jews are going to go back and sacrifice in their temple. I believe there's going to be a third temple built. By the way, they're working on that very vehemently. Getting all that in order this day. Um, But halfway through, of course, at the beginning, Moses, and if it's Moses, Moses and Elijah are going to appear and they're going to prophesy. There's going to be 7,000 sealed out of every tribe of Israel as well. But they're going to appeal and then they're going to be killed. And of course, they're going to be killed in Jerusalem after three and a half years. And But, you you know, wouldn't you think, so this is, again, God's mercy in preparing them, and wouldn't you think they would have been recognized by the Jews? But verse 13 says that the remnant were affrighted. You know, Zechariah tells us that two-thirds of Israel will be destroyed. In other words, only a third is going to turn to the Lord. Only a third. But again, wouldn't you think that they'd recognize Elijah and Moses? But they didn't. But you think about it. Have we properly prepared? With the light of a complete revelation for generations, are we properly prepared? for The Lord's coming. You know, and the Lord has given us, you know, we have his word which we can read and study and uh, and the Lord has given us, uh, uh, told us what's about his coming and First Thessalonians 5 again, but the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you for yourselves know perfectly the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Verse 4, but ye, brethren, are not in darkness that they should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others. Let us watch and be sober. In 2 Peter 3, Peter talks about this, and he calls it the reason people are not prepared is, he says, they are willingly ignorant of. Now, a lot of people today say, well, they believe in science. What does science show you? What does true science reveal that happened thousands of years ago in this world? A world-wide flood. And he mentions that in this passage. Um, and they, these things they're willingly ignorant of. You know, God has given plenty of notice and witness that we, all every, every human being, is going to give an account of himself to God. So, we see here uh, the abruptness of his coming. Secondly, I want you to notice the actions of judgment. The actions of judgment. In Malachi chapter 4, again, (coughs) uh, verses 1 and 3, it says, For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven. Uh, First of all, as we think about the actions of judgment, the destruction of the wicked. There's two two parts. To this destruction of the wicked. Verses one and three. For behold, as the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly, shall be as stubble. And that day shall that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. And then again in verse three, it says, and ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Of course, Paul told us in Second Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8, And you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, the first thing we see here is that God's going to destroy the wicked. He's going to burn them as an oven, and they shall be stubble. It kind of reminds you of Sodom and Gomorrah. And and in you know verse three says that you're going to trample on the ashes. you to tread the ashes. You have to wonder did did uh, did Abraham and his servants get down to. Uh, Revelation chapter 14, Revelation 14, and the book of Revelation gets pretty explicit about this trampling, Uh, Revelation 14, and verse 14, it says, and I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time has come for thee to reap. For the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud, thrust in his sickle in the earth, and the earth was reaped. another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the cluster of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city. Of course, the city is referring to Jerusalem here again. And blood came out of the winepress, even under the horses' bridles, by the space of a thousand six hundred furlongs. So the metaphor here the picture here is of a wine press. Now in Bible days, a wine press, they would they would put the put the the grapes in a vat, so to speak. And then they'd get in there with their bare feet and start squashing it. You know what's going to happen? The juice is going to start running. And that's the picture. God's going to trample the wicked like in a wine press. And he said the blood is going to flow 1,600 furlongs. That's about 200 miles. Now, chapter 16 tells us that that there's going to be unclean spirits in verse 13 like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophets. And what they're going to do is bring all the armies of the entire world against Israel. In what's called the Battle of Armageddon. So there will be millions, if not billions, of men, probably women, coming to battle against Israel. Because at this point in time, the Antichrist has turned against Israel. You know, he made a peace treaty to start there. But, but in the middle, he, of course, breaks that treaty, begins to persecute them. And, and so the, the, all these armies gather together against Israel. And for 200 miles, the blood's going to flow like a great wine press. Um, look also at chapter 19. It says to the horse's bridles. You know, horse's bridles or. Four feet, you know some there's a question of whether that's actually referring to that high or, or what exactly that means, but it's going to be a lot of blood uh, chapter nineteen, verse eleven, talking about this battle, and I saw heaven open, and behold a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and he and on his head were many crowns. Uh, crowns. He had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture, dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. Of course, that's our Lord Jesus Christ. And the armies which were in heaven... Who's that? That's us. The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses. You girls always wanted to ride a white horse? Well, uh, white horses... um, Clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And notice this, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, you might say, that's awful. You know, the typical, the typical Christian today would say, that's awful. That's mean. That's cruel. You know, a lot of people, you know, this Bart Ehrman over here, was at what is it, UNC Chapel Hill, professor of theology or whatever he is, says that God's mean, and ogre, you know, and all these kinds of things. They say, cruel. Cool. Is this right? Is it fair? Is it justice? Well, let me answer that question for you. Go to Matthew 23. I want you to follow me here. Matthew 23. Is this right? Is it fair? Is it justice? Matthew 23. We're going to go on a rabbit trail. On a train. Train ride. But it does have a caboose. Matthew 23, verse 29. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, hypocrites. Because you build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchers of the righteous, and say so they, sort of like we do today, they they build these um, um, memorials in honor. And what we we don't stand for the things that we build the memorials in honor of them who did. That's the idea here. You know, so they were building these things and garnished the sepulchers of the righteous. You know, they're bragging about their history. However, it says and say, If we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Now these are the same people that are going to crucify Jesus. This is what they said, that we would not have been partakers. Wherefore, ye be witnesses unto yourselves, that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill you up then the measure of your fathers, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers. How can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them ye shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed under, upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel. It goes clear back to the book of Genesis to righteous Abel. Under the blood of Zacharias the son of Barakas. He was the last one martyred. In the Old Testament. Whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you. All these things shall come upon this generation. And it's going to culminate in their crucifixion of him. Well. Go to Hebrews. Chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, <coughs> verse 32. And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, and of Barak, and of Samson, and of Jephthah, and David, also and Sammon, of the prophets, who through faith the sub- subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, and notice, women received their dead race to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they may obtain, might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth. And these... All, having obtained a good report through faith, receive not the promise. Of course, here he's talking about those who suffer. Some believe this is talking about future from the time it was written that would suffer for the cause of Christ. We'll one over Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. Revelation 6, 9. And when he had opened the fifth seal... I saw unto the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood and them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled." Then chapter 16, verse 4. And the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art, and was, and shalt be, because thou hast judged thus. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. And thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. And another heard another out of the altar say, "Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are their judgments, are thy judgments." So is God fair? Is this justice? You know, this is really what this really is: is the culmination of the judgment of false religion. You know, you can call it Judaism. You can call it works religion, Cain. You, know, you can call it Judaism. You can call it Roman Catholicism. You can call it Protestant. You can call it any name you want. But they have persecuted and killed the saints of God down through the years. It's the harlot of Revelation 17 and 18. And I believe it refers to more than just the Roman Catholic Church. I believe it goes all the way back to Nimrod and even back to Cain. But just let me give you some examples of figures concerning the number of killed by Popery. Dowling in his history of Romanism says from the birth of Popery in 606 to the present time it is estimated by careful and credible historians that more than 50 millions of the human family have been slaughtered for the crime of Heresy by popish persecutors, an average of more than 40,000 religious murders for every year of the existence of popery. We were to see the Waldensian Museum in. uh, Valdez, North Carolina here. In Clark's martyrology accounts the number of the Waldensian martyrs during the first half of the 13th century in France alone at two million. From A.D. 1160 to 1560 the Waldensians which dwelt in the Italian Alps were visited with 36 different fierce persecutions that spared neither age nor sex. Thomas Ar- Armitage History of Baptists. They were almost completely destroyed as a people, and most of their literary record was erased from the face of the earth. From the year 1540 to 1570, it is proved by national authentic testimony that nearly one million of Protestants were publicly put to death in various countries in Europe, besides all those who were privately destroyed and of whom no human record exists. Catholic Historian Vergarius, I guess that's how you say it, admits gleefully that during the pontificate of Pope Paul IV, which would be 1555 to 1559, the Inquisition alone, by tortures, starvation, or fire, murdered more than 150,000 Protestants. These are only small samples of the brutality which was poured out upon dissident Christians by the Roman Catholic Church during the Inquisition. Um, you know, and, and it just goes on and on and on. The Catholic Crusade, uh, another source writes, Catholic, uh, well, um, uh, let you see here, where am I at here? Um, in, one, in only one crusade, two million Albigenses were killed. How many there must have been altogether and how many millions more must have been killed during the entire Middle Ages? Another source writes, the Catholic crusade against the Albigenses. By that way, that's another Anabaptist group. The Waldensians were Anabaptists, like us. The Albigenses were another Anabaptist group. Um, in southern France, from 1209 to 1229, under Pope's Innocent III, uh, Honorius, should it be Honorius, uh, Gre- the third and Gregory the ten- ninth, was one of the bloodiest tragedies in human history. The number of Albigenses that perished in the Twenty Years' War is estimated at from one to two millions. Um, uh, W.E.H. Lecky says, quote, that the Church of Rome has shed more innocent blood than any other institution that's ever existed among mankind. Will be questioned by no Protestant who has a competent knowledge of history. The morals indeed, of many of her persecutions are now so scanty that it is impossible to form a complete conception of the multitude of her victims. It is quite certain that no power of imagination can adequately re- realize their sufferings. Um, you know, another, another commentator, uh, Smucker, S.S. Smucker says, Need I speak to you of the Thirty Years' War in Germany, which was mainly instigated by the Jesuits in order to deprive the Protestants of the right of free religious worship, secured to them by the Treaty of Augsburg, or of the Irish Rebellion in the inhuman butchery of about 15 millions of Indians uh, uh, in South America, Mexico, and Cuba by the Spanish Papists? In short, it is calculated by authentic historians that Papal Rome has shed the blood of 68 millions of the human race in order to establish her unfounded claims of religious dominion. Um, So, the question again is, is it fair? Is it justice? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. God's a God of mercy, but God foremost is a God of holiness and righteousness. And he he is a righteous judge, and he is going to judge them, like somebody trampling grapes in a wine press. You know, of course, finally all these will be cast into the lake of fire. The actions of judgment. So think of the actions of judgment. Secondly, as you think of the actions of judgment, there's going to be the reward of the righteous. There's first of all the destruction of the witches, wicked. There's also the reward of the righteous. <coughs> Excuse me. In Malachi, again, chapter 4, and verses 2 and 3, notice it says But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this saith the Lord of hosts what's interesting about the word sun it's <coughs> capitalized it's referring to a person it's comparing the Lord to the sun it speaks of brilliance of the eastern morning sun after the night that's going to arise or come out or appear you know, Jesus said in John 8:12 I am the light he that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Revelation 21 tells us, and 20 to 25, it tells us that after he in heaven, there's going to be no need of the sun, because the Lord God is the light thereof. And there'll be no night. The Son of righteousness. We're going to go from times of darkness to all light. All light. And of course the gates of it shall not be shut all by, all by day. For there shall be no night there. You're Daniel said in Daniel 12.3. That the, the wise shall shine as the brightness of the stars forever and ever. Son of righteousness. Don't know that. He talks about calves. Of the stall. Now, I think the picture there he's trying to present is, you know, as a farm boy, I'm very familiar with this. You know, over winter, you know, we kept our cattle inside in the barn all winter, and and we let them out of the barn, stall barn, and they just go out in what we called the barnyard, which is just a fenced-in area. It wasn't very big, so they were kind of cried in there. You know, when we cleaned the barn, we'd bring them back in. So they spent all but maybe a couple, maybe an hour, two hours at the in the never just free out in the pasture. You know, if you pin up a calf like that and all of a sudden comes spring, you let him out. You know what he's gonna do? He's gonna run and jump and you know, and take off and, and it's like he's been set free, all bounds have been broken. You know, he's just like a horse. You know, if a horse gets out of its pasture, you know what it'll do? It'll just bolt like crazy. <laughs> My nephew got his daughter a horse and he, and, uh, he built her a pen and, and this was back around Christmas, I think it was Christmas I, I saw him and um, I said, so how's the horse coming along? He said, he got loose the other day, he ran right down the streets of McAlevey's Fort and that's probably three, four miles away. You know, it got out of the pasture. Boy, when they get free, they go. That's the idea here, free. Uh, it's let out. Uh, Isaiah 61 10 says this I will greatly rejoice in the Lord my soul the bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments and as a bride adorned herself with with her jewels picture of a wedding there there's excitement and as you think about that in Revelation 21 uh, verses 1 through 7 he talks about you know there's going to be no 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 sorrow, no more pain, no suffering. We're going to be set free. The righteous are going to be set free from all the burdens, the corruption of sin, and the influence of the world on our mind and our life. No longer be at war against our flesh because it will be changed. We will have no burdens to bear over there. So we will set free like a calf out of a stall, and we will, we will triumph over our enemies again. He says, here in chapter in verse three, and ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do. Saith the Lord of hosts. You ever get in the flesh and you wish you could take vengeance? Be patient; the day of vengeance is coming. God is going to take vengeance. In Revelation 19, 14, guess who's coming with him on the armies of white horses? We are. In chapter 20, verse 6, it says we're going to rule and reign with him for a thousand years. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 2, he told the church of Corinth, do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? He was referring to that time to come. We will triumph over our enemies. So Paul tells us in first Corinthians fifteen fifty eight, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. But don't you notice the preparation as we conclude, the preparation made, verse two. And then verse 6, but unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And then verse 6, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with the curse. So those that fear my name, the word fear, of course, means reverence. It means to worship. It means to give deference to. It's a yielding of opinion and will. That's really what repentance is. So it's to turn to the Lord by faith. And as you think about the phrase here, I I try to discern what the meaning of that phrase. Uh, Some, you know, one said, uh, "James Foster Brown said actually that you know some say it 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 just means implying that turning disobedient children to their fathers." But he believes it refers more to, and I think he's right. The idea of return to the faith of your fathers, Moses and Elijah, that are mentioned here. Return to the faith of your fathers. Turn to the faith of your fathers. The alternative is, or be cursed, lest I smite the earth with a curse. Israel, as you think about the first coming of Jesus, they didn't turn to him. And what happened? They were cursed. The Romans came in, destroyed their city, destroyed their temple that they prided themselves in, which Jesus tried to cleanse. (laughs) He destroyed it. It was God's judgment. And so, again, he's telling and warning them here, you need to turn to the, the faith of your fathers like Moses and Elijah, Abraham and Jacob, lest you're cursed with everlasting destruction. So, your God in his mercy and his grace always gives us warning. Time and opportunity to prepare. Now is our day of opportunity. You know, I don't know how many times I've talked to people and they say, well, you know, I talked to a guy last night. I'm young yet. I'm young yet. Don't really think about those things. That doesn't mean you're going to live very long. We need to prepare. Wildest today. Harden not your hearts as in the provocation. Might God help us to be prepared for we believe the coming of the Lord is near. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the time you your word tonight. Thank you for the encouragement and the warnings that you give us in your word which are given for our instruction, for our learning, for our admonition. Father, help us to heed the instructions and the warnings that you might find us prepared and ready to meet the Lord when he comes. Well, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.